AMU. The following podcast is brought to you by American Military University on behalf of In Public Safety. Welcome to the podcast, In Public Safety Matters. I'm your host, Leishan Stelter. On today's show, we're going to talk about a revolutionary new way that law enforcement is using DNA and genetic genealogy databases to help solve, in some cases, decades-old cold cases. There have been some major cases solved recently, including the identification of the Golden State Killer, who had eluded police since 1976. In this case, and others, it's brought a lot of attention to the value and power of using DNA and genealogy to solve cold cases. To talk with me more about this, I'm joined by Dr. Chuck Russo. Dr. Russo began his law enforcement career in 1987 in Central Florida and has been involved in all areas of patrol, training, special operations, and investigations before retiring in 2013. Dr. Russo is currently the Program Director for Criminal Justice at American Military University. Welcome, Dr. Russo, and thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you for the invite. I'm happy to be here. Let's start our discussion today by just giving listeners a better sense of how this all works. Can you explain a little bit more about what DNA is, how it's used by law enforcement, and then we can talk about the incredible potential there is when DNA is combined and entered into genetic genealogy databases? Well, DNA is present in nearly all living organisms as chromosomes, and it's really what carries our genetic information. It gives each person their unique genetic code, and it can be extracted from really any person's cell. Now, a typical human cell has 46 chromosomes that carry DNA. Sperm only has 23 chromosomes as it comes together with the woman's egg that contains the other 23 cells. And frequently, DNA is obtained from blood, saliva, hair, sperm, skin, and cheek cells. Now, something you hear about a lot is touch DNA, and that really only needs as few as five skin cells from some type of contact to make a DNA fingerprint. Now, this could be from clothing, weapons, food, a glass, a door handle, really anything that a person would come in contact with. A woman passes certain DNA to all of their offspring that is just really comes from the female side. It's not mixed with the DNA of the father, and this is passed down through all females to the current generation, which can in fact be male. Now, the Y chromosome is present only in males, and this is passed down through the male line. And then we have autosomal DNA, and this is found in 22 non-gender specific chromosomes and is inherited from both parents. So how do you envision using some of this DNA? How is it used when it comes to the genealogy databases? You talked a little bit about how chromosomes are passed down from parent to child. But when it comes to actually like tracking these folks, can you talk a little bit about some of those genealogy databases? Yeah, well, first we'll start with like, what is genealogy, because not everyone's familiar with that. And that's really the studies of families and tracing their lineages and history. Now, in the past, genealogists would use things like oral interviews, historical records, other documents they could obtain. Uh, church records were often used to get information about a person and determine that person's lineage and history. Now, with genetic information, DNA can enable a person to identify who he or she's related or not related to. And if the person is related to another, it can also be used to predict the number of generations separating those two people. 
And the mother's DNA can be used to identify relatives from her side of the family. The Y chromosome from identifies folks from the male side of the family. And the, the autosomal DNA can uncover relatives from really any branch of the family. And that's often used to estimate the ethnicity of an individual. So genealogy really up until roughly 20 years ago was a lot of, again, the historical documents and paper trails and oral interviews and such. But with the utilization of DNA, it's really exploded the whole genealogy area where most anyone can become an amateur genealogist. It is pretty fascinating to think that we went from just looking at marriage records and, like you said, some of them more of like a paper trail, trying to find relatives to now being able to incorporate actual genetic material to identify and ensure that we have this certain lineage or whatnot. We'll be back right after this. Protecting the public from health challenges such as epidemics requires people with knowledge and skill who are capable of being change agents. At American Military University, you will learn the skills needed to improve today's public health in local communities and around the globe. Take the next step and apply today at amuonline.com. Welcome back. Can you talk a little bit more about how this came together, how the DNA and genealogy came together from a law enforcement perspective? Because from what I've read, and and I'm not an expert on any of these cases or how genealogy has been used, but it sounds like it's been a pretty revolutionary investigation tool that's still probably being figured out by law enforcement even today. Yeah, to a degree, it is still being figured out. It started with basically some investigators being very creative and utilizing all the possible tools in the toolbox. You know, if you look at recent headlines, you'd be aware of just the different cases where genealogy databases have been utilized in solving and bringing a close to cold cases. The Golden State Killer is one that brought a lot of this to light for people. But there's been many other cases homicides, murders, sexual batteries, rapes, 20 years old or more, where evidence was collected at the time, but based upon the tools available, the tools in the toolbox, the evidence just sat and didn't lead to anywhere. However, getting creative using everything legal at your disposal, what we saw were investigators taking that evidence, trying to get it reprocessed again, because just DNA testing period has made great leaps and bounds in the 20 plus years that it's been around. And someone came up with a great idea. Well, let's submit this to one of the genealogy databases. And there are many out there now to see if we can work with leads. Typically, you do with any evidence, whether it's an eyewitness or a video or gather all the information you can and work it till there's nothing else to work. Well, with the recent technology and the utilization of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, we now have a new tool. Investigators now have a new tool they can use. So what was once basically, we got to the end of the line with this evidence, we can't go any further. Now, lo and behold, they can. So we have these direct-to-consumer genetic testing services like Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, Pathway. These have all come about in the last 10 years. And these provide access to a person's genetic information without any involvement or referral from a doctor, healthcare provider, or insurance company. 
And you can get these tests. I've seen them on sale for like $60, $70 for just basic ancestry up to several hundred dollars that tells you an entire health profile, ancestry, just more stuff than most people could process, I guess. But what we saw is taking this or retaking evidence that was just sitting that based upon what we had when it was collected, they took it to its farthest logical conclusion. Well, now this door opened up and it can then, we can take this evidence, submit it to these labs, and from that determine ancestry. We can locate possible relatives and it can help narrow down suspect lists from, depending on what case, you could have hundreds still out there to just a handful based upon the information that, like any other piece of evidence, a piece of single evidence is useful. However, when you start using it in conjunction with other pieces of evidence, you start to zero in on a, essentially a prime suspect. So by using the evidence that was already collected and using the evidence that's available through these types of direct-to-consumer testing services, agencies have, investigators have been able to narrow that field down to, in many cases, one individual, the suspect who they believe committed the crime. I just wanted to clarify, too, for the listener, sort of how this process works. And you touched on it a little bit, but I just want to make sure it's pretty clear that when you have DNA evidence and you enter it into the genetic genealogy database, it's not like it's going to give you a result like, oh, it's this. It's not going to give you an individual. It's basically going to say this DNA profile matches this group of people. And that's kind of just giving investigators a starting point. And then they can basically start building out following that family tree and doing research until, like you said, they kind of come to a potential suspect. But can you maybe, if that's not an accurate depiction, just kind of tell the listener a little more about how that actually works? Yeah, well, investigators will submit work on cold cases, submit previously gathered DNA evidence from a crime scene to a direct-to-consumer genealogy testing service. And the services then return information about the DNA makeup of the submitted sample, like ancestry composition and individuals who may share similar DNA. And this enables law enforcement to identify possible family members of the sample donor and create an extended family tree. These relatives represent a list of potential leads that investigators can then follow in conjunction with other case evidence to help identify suspects. Even when you submit the fingerprint to labs, odds are when they run it through APHIS, you don't get an exact match. You get a list of basically a sample of 10 possible matches where a tech will have to go through and physically match the fingerprints. In some ways, this works very similar. It doesn't say, well, your suspect Steve, but it gives you enough information that in conjunction with other evidence, you may be able to narrow down the field of suspects and say with a degree of probability that Steve is the one who committed the offense. Now, with some of these testing services, they, well, let me back up. When a consumer submits a sample, they frequently will sign a waiver, goes along with that sample. That essentially releases the sample to the company to use, essentially, as they see fit. And some companies are very clear and very outspoken about how well they work with law enforcement when a request comes in. They see that as very proud that they work frequently and help law enforcement as best they can. Other companies, depending on how the request comes in, 
require subpoenas and such for results. However, if the agency submits a sample as a consumer, then there isn't necessarily the need for subpoenas because they may need subpoenas for other relatives to get that information if that information doesn't come about in another manner. But frequently, law enforcement can and will submit the sample much like a consumer would. And it kind of opens up some privacy areas, which we're still very early in these types of cases. And we haven't seen like the Golden State Killer. And we haven't seen that work its way through the court system yet. So we're not sure how these things are going to go when we start seeing court challenges and appeals. So this is really still a very, very new area where not everything is set in stone yet. It's still kind of up in the air as to how this will eventually play out as far as the court system is concerned. And like you said, it's hard to know what legal direction this will take because it hasn't made its way into the court system. It's just like a lot of issues involving technology. Those takes years and years for it to hit the court system before things get figured out. But in the meantime, do you anticipate a lot of law enforcement agencies continuing to kind of refine the way that they're using this tool? Is it something they're excited about? And obviously, there's been some really impressive press and media attention, like in the Golden State Killer case. But do you anticipate law enforcement kind of running with this until they're basically told, here's the parameters? I would expect that until they're told otherwise. It's yet another tool that they can use to try to bring justice to a family, to a victim. It's another fact that can be utilized in court. And especially due to the essentially a low cost, it having sense, you know, you have a cold case where you have, say you got a case that's 20 years old, you have how many hours dedicated to work in this, how much money's been put into the investigation already, the crime labs and such, the testing, the photography. At this point, when you look at dollars, what's another hundred dollars? to submit a sample. You can get a very large return on the investment. And I would expect agency administrators, investigators, um, those running detective bureaus and CID and such, to see this as a cost-effective tool that can be used when circumstances present themselves. Right now, we're seeing it used a lot with cold cases. Who knows? We may see it used with cases more frequently with active cases to help narrow down the field of suspects because a $100 or $200 investment by submitting a sample to a direct-to-consumer testing service may save you a lot more time than if you put a couple of detectives on a case. What's their hourly rate and you figure this out? Heck, it's cheaper sending in, you know, spending a little money for a sample than it is putting lots of hours in chasing false leads. That's a good point that it's very reasonable from a financial standpoint. And uh, the cost, there is obviously some labor involved. I actually was listening to another podcast recently where Detective Paul Holmes, who was very instrumental in the Golden State Killer case, was talking a little bit about the genealogy aspect of that. And I think he was sort of figuring out at that time, like how it was going to work. They were one of the first agencies to really take that on. But he said they spent... I think he said they spent a couple months really just figuring out the family tree and confirming their work and 
determining the process of how to narrow down to the eventual suspect that they found. But it's a really good point that it gives officers a really good direction to head in. It's a really financially viable solution. And apparently it's solving a lot of these existing cold cases, which is from the public standpoint, a very incredible achievement. Although when you did talk a little bit about the privacy concerns, I do think there may be some people who decide maybe I'm not going to enter my DNA profile to see what my ethnicity is or whatnot, because I don't want that out there. But in the case I know of the Golden State Killer, like that genetic database was a public genetic whatever service, as far as I remember reading. Yeah, I think that was the pathway genome or something, I believe, is what they may have utilized. Because there was funds and such to build an initial database many, many years ago, which is still active which requested samples and such. So that is still out there. There's a few different concerns with the bioethics side of things that many involved in the medical profession could speak to far better than I ever could because of what's capable, what science can do with DNA. It no longer requires a man and a woman to make a child. All that's required now is DNA from a person. And essentially, the child can be I think the best word here, but grown. And once, if you submit a sample to some of these DNA databases, you're, you're signing releases that gives them the ability to utilize your DNA in ways you've probably never imagined and ways they may not have even imagined yet, because we don't know exactly where this is going to take, or not we, but science doesn't really know where this whole road is going to go. There is valid concerns and what you spoke to earlier about the detectives taking many, many hours working the ancestry part of the uh, sample they submitted. I know from a personal standpoint, you can get lost for hours working those sites trying to build your own family tree. And that's usually when you have some knowledge of who you're looking for and what you're looking for. So imagine essentially going in there blind or with building someone's tree where you have no information about them whatsoever. And it is not I can't believe it would be an easy task. I believe it would take a lot of work to construct it properly because it can be easy to go down basically dead-end roads with, with those types of databases. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating field. It'll be interesting to see where it leads. And like you said, who knows? We didn't imagine we would, 20 years ago when you were collecting samples, no one really thought about DNA and being able to collect that kind of information back then. So it's we've obviously, from a scientific perspective, it's just grown incredibly in the last few decades alone. Who knows where it's going to go in the short amount of time? Yeah, initially with DNA, you were looking at blood evidence. Well, then the advances in DNA and the testing and all, we were able to get it through touch, which we were never able to get initially. I remember one case, we had a working a ton of car burglaries, and we recovered a coquina rock, which is a very porous rock that was used to smash one of the car windows. And we had no leads. We were getting torn up. And we decided we submitted the rock to see what we can get DNA off it. And lo and behold, we did. That would have been when DNA first came about, that would, getting evidence off of something like a rock would have been a dream. No one thought we'd be at that point. So fast forward a few more years, and who knows what we're going to be able to do with this type of evidence. 
And when we look at the privacy concerns, we can look at the facial recognition database, where right now, well over 60% of the population in the U.S. is already in the database. Will we reach a point where the DNA samples could be very similar to where we have a very large portion of those in the U.S. in the database? It may be entirely possible. Depends on how some of this shakes out, how other court cases shake out, and what and where the next threat is. There were a lot of people, myself included, voluntarily submitted our samples for the genealogy aspect of it. But are there other reasons why this information should be collected, could be collected? How could it be utilized? It is all going to be very interesting to see how this shakes out. And out of curiosity, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you submit your DNA to a law enforcement agency, is there a DNA database that's overseen by the CODIS or whatever with the fingerprints? Is that a separate database? Do you know? That I can't talk to about. I don't have enough knowledge to know if there is, in fact, the centralized database. I know we were working a serial killer case where we were doing cheek swabs on everybody, essentially, we could. And I believe the release we were utilizing said the results would be destroyed within a six-month period, but that was voluntary. Some states for felonies or for different crimes will do a mandatory collection. And my guess, and this is just a guess, is that that information would then be held in a database. That's just controlled by law enforcement. Yeah, different states may have different rules and regulations regarding that. So I really can't say one way or another because I, I don't know. Yeah, I would assume that database would be separate, but it would be interesting if it was ever combined with the private company DNA availability to have even a wider, you know, people who didn't voluntarily maybe. Yeah, even if it was like a one-way pipe, like a read valve, where the voluntary services could contribute their information to, say it's a federal database, but the information in the federal database, which may not necessarily be voluntarily collected, would not go the other way. Right. You know, there are different things that could occur. And my guess is when we start seeing some of these things go to court, and then we start getting a few years, we're a few years away from actually getting a good handle, a good feel about where this stuff's going to land, because the cases have to go through the system, and then we have the appeals. And we also, think of it, with many of these cases, we're finding the, like say for some of the homicide cases, the killer's dead. It's never going to go to court. There's no one to prosecute. They've already passed on. So it's not that every one of these cases is going to be able to establish case law either. So it's going to have to be particular cases that will take their time to work their way through the system, and we'll have to see how the, the, the appeals shake out. And it's going to be interesting to hear what the medical community says about this, as well as basically the technology community who holds all the, the information in their storehouses, in their databases, different ways of how the information is protected, stored, secured, to protect against breaches. And it's a lot of different players that actually come together on this. And that's going to be interesting to see how each subcomponent works and then how it all works together in the bigger picture. Yeah, it's definitely one of those very questionable eventual outcome scenarios where no one can really predict how it's going to shake out. But very interesting. It's definitely something to keep a close eye on from both a law enforcement perspective, but just from a, the public stance as well. Yeah, this has been incredibly informative and really great discussion. I really want to thank you for joining me today, Dr. Russo. It's always a pleasure. Uh, pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. And I also want to let our listeners know that they'll soon be able to hear more insights from you. I want to announce that Dr. Russo will be starting his own podcast segment called Inside Criminal Justice with Dr. Russo 
where he'll be talking about some of these related topics in law enforcement with other experts affecting law enforcement around the country. So we're very excited to hear more from you, Dr. Russo. Oh, thank you. We're already lining up some good people on some really interesting topics, things such as unmanned aerial systems and specific school district policing and a lot of participation, a lot of good people willing to uh, get involved with this. So I have a feeling it's going to be a real good thing. Yeah, we can't wait to hear more. So thank you to our listeners for joining us for this segment of In Public Safety Matters. I'm Leishan Stelter. Be well and stay safe. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.